As a reminder, as a brief reminder, we are in the middle of the final chapter of the Yoga Sutra, the fundamental text of yoga ascribed to Patanjali. And I am giving here a tantric comment, a commentary from the standpoint of Agama Yoga and of the tantric styles of yoga to this deep fundamental text of yoga emanated by Patanjali and which is a classic, a great classic of yoga. And in the last discourse I stopped at the commentary after having made some comments on the sutra number 20. I remind that Patanjali has been talking, Patanjali introduced the concept of the mind, functions of the mind in the beginning of this chapter, bringing up again some concepts about the vasanas, the kleshas, the various residues of the mind, and his purpose all the time was to connect this mind to the spirit, to the overmind, to what Sri Aurobindo has called the supramental, to that reality which is beyond the mind and which in the Sankhya philosophy whose terminology yoga, classical yoga has used extensively, has simply called Purusha or the transcendent spirit. So Patanjali has, has worked in introducing the various limitations of the mind and aspects of the mind with a view to reaching to the upper end of the spectrum and showing to the world how the mind dovetails with the spirit, where the transition between the mind and the spirit is there. And in the Sutra 18, he has already started this final process, which is what he will clarify till the end of this chapter, and therefore till the end of the text, in which he said, I remind the one reading of the Sutra number 18, was that Purusha, the master of the Chitta, of the mind, so Purusha like corresponding to the crown chakra, to understand it in terms of Tantric Yoga, in terms of energy and chakras. So Purusha, corresponding to the level number 7, the master of Chitta, which is corresponding to Agnya Chakra, the level number 6 of the manifestation, is changeless and therefore always knows the modification of the mind. He simply introduced and he said there exists a witness to the mind. And he is in the process of demonstrating that that's the only way of conceiving of the reality. Basically he is trying first of all to refute the argument that the mind is the last thing which there exists. In materialistic philosophies the mind is the last thing which exists. For example, Descartes, in the famous Cartesian philosophy, the rationalism of modern times, Descartes, René Descartes, the French philosopher, says, cogito ergo sum, in Latin, which translated means, I think, therefore I am. Therefore, for Descartes, the proof of I am, of the spirit, of the pure existence, is actually that I think. For him, the mind is the spirit. But for Patanjali, as well as for the great mystics, the mind is not the spirit. The mind is the last but one of the links of the chain, because then there comes this what we call spirit, Atman in Sanskrit, the supreme self, the pure consciousness, and so many other names have been given to this ultimate level. And he is in the process of demonstrating that this is a must, even in terms of the way Patanjali sees the universe and the mind, he says if you do not have a supreme consciousness that supersedes the mind, you, it makes no sense. The whole process is falling apart. And in the sutra number 20, where I stopped last time, he said, and there cannot be comprehension of both simultaneously, uh, by this implying from the sutra number 19 previous, to it that there cannot be 
in the mind comprehension of both subject and object simultaneously. In the Sutra number 19, he had said that citta, the mind, is not self-illumined because it can be itself the subject of knowledge and perception. You can observe the mind. You can observe your own mind. You can look at yourself and say, ah, look how agitated my mind is. So the question is, who sees the mind? The mind sees the mind or something else sees the mind? And therefore, he says, since the mind has no light of perception in it, it cannot see itself. It's like a room in the dark. It's absolute darkness. You cannot see anything in pitch black darkness. And therefore, you need the light. And the light is the light of the spirit, the self-effulgent light. And in the Sutra number 20, where we had reached last time, he said, and there can not be comprehension of both simultaneously, of that self-effulgent consciousness and of the world of objects, of the objects. Actually, here Patanjali, although just a few sutras later he contradicts himself philosophically, but he doesn't seem to perceive that point, Patanjali again, although in some other sutras before, has emitted ideas which are rather tantric in nature. Here, Patanjali in this sutra is presenting an idea which is purely Vedantic, an idea which is purely isolationistic. He isolates spirit from matter and he says the mind is either on the side of the subject or on the side of the object but both cannot be perceived simultaneously, which means there is Purusha or there is Prakriti, not simultaneously. There is Shiva or there is Shakti, not simultaneously. There is Nirvana or there is Samsara. There is non-manifestation or manifestation, not simultaneously. Well, that is exactly what the Anuttara Yoga Tantra, the highest tantric text of Tibetan Buddhism, and even more than that, that is precisely what Kashmiri Shaivism, as the highest tantric text of the Indian tradition, that's precisely what they say. They say, oh no, we beg to disagree. It is actually possible to have them simultaneously. And that simultaneity of subject and object, of interiority and externality, of Shiva and Shakti, is precisely what constitutes the highest level of existence and the highest spiritual accomplishment which many yogis, for example Ramakrishna in India, have called by the name of Bhava Samadhi or Sahaja Samadhi. The Samadhi with the eyes open, the simultaneous being inside in Nirvikalpa Samadhi and outside present in the world, subject and object at the same time. That is why the Tantric tradition would not fully confirm Patanjali on this Sutra because it would say it's a matter of perception. The highest Tantric tradition in, uh, embodied in Kashmiri Shaivism says that there exists a very difficult practice, a very difficult practice, an ultimate practice. Even yogis who have reached states of Samadhi do not always fathom the depths of this one and in those in that very high state of spirituality one is trying to achieve a sequence a sequentiality in Sanskrit this sequence is called krama the Sanskrit word which denotes a sequence and therefore the technique used for this in Kashmiri Shaivism language is called krama mudra and the krama mudra says Focus on the internality of the pure spirit of the Shiva consciousness of the void. Then open the eyes and lose yourself into the manifestation and see the object. And then resorb yourself again back into the consciousness and realize whatever you are, whatever is happening, is the pure spirit. I hope you didn't forget that. And then come out again. And like this, like a pendulum, go deep inside your crown chakra, go outside to the world. Go inside, go outside. And swing. It's a sequence. It's like a blinking. It's like a breathing process. Completely in Purusha, 
completely on Prakriti. Shiva, Shakti. Shiva, Shakti. And therefore, when in the moment when you start getting used to it, those two start coexisting. Imagine that you have a television screen, and on a television screen you have two points blinking by a computer program. And you have a white dot blinking here, bip, and another white dot blinking here, bip. And this white dot is kind of moving from here to here. You have bip, 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 bip. It goes from one point to the other alternatively. But if you start increasing the frequency, if you make it 50 times per second, there are suddenly two points. You can't see it blinking anymore. Both are there. So in the moment when you go Shiva Shakti, Shiva Shakti, Shiva Shakti, Shiva Shakti, Shiva Shakti, Shiva Shakti, in that moment, it's suddenly a dual perception. It gets so fast that one can have simultaneously the perception of the subject and of the object. That is why here Patanjali does not present the highest opinion in spirituality. I always said and warned that the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali through its goals and ideals usually stops at the level of the Nirvikalpa Samadhi or the state of void, the Shiva consciousness. You are a prisoner of samsara and you withdraw into the purity of Nirvana. That's where it stops, because if you achieved this goal, you have reached liberation, you have reached the point of no return, so to speak, in spirituality, you have crossed the threshold of transformation, and therefore from there there is no longer a decay, a spiritual decay, or a forgetfulness. One has acquired a state of realization of the self, and from then, from there on, it is just a matter of time and experience. It's just a matter of growing up spiritually to be able to understand that there is something which includes that void and the manifestation itself. So Patanjali, even through the title of the final chapter of the Yoga Sutra, which is Kaivalya, isolation. Patanjali wants Shiva isolated from Shakti. And Tantra wants Shiva to dance with Shakti. Tantra says Shiva and Shakti cannot be possibly separated. It's a utopia to try to separate them because Shiva is Shakti and Shakti is Shiva. That is where the Tantric tradition goes to a level of synthesis which is beyond even what Patanjali has reached. We are not trying to say that Patanjali didn't know these things. Maybe he knew them, but he didn't find it useful that in a text which addressed to all, that he should mention something which was over the top. It's exactly like you would mention uh, university level mathematics to somebody who starts studying primary school with uh, elementary arithmetics. Why should you bother informing them about differential calculus or tensorial mathematics when actually they are dealing with addition, subtraction, multiplication and division and they will take a good time to learn those. And that is why, again, it is very hard to say because some of the remarks, and I pointed them to you along this commentary to the Yoga Sutra, that in some of the sutras, Patanjali definitely takes some turn of phrase of the words which shows him to actually state something which is purely tantric in a metaphysical way. But in 80% of the sutras, in most of the sutras, his position relapses back always on this classic, conventional, traditional Vedantic uh, style. And that is the case of this sutra, when he says there cannot be comprehension of both simultaneously. Tantra says, by Bhairavi Mudra, by Krama Mudra, as I said earlier, oh yes, there can be perception of both simultaneously and both are there simultaneously. That is the great mystery of the mind as we are going to understand because Patanjali outlines that beautifully. And thus we are ready to move on to the Sutra number 21 which as promised uh, presents a brilliant, although very simple, a brilliant way of thinking like down-to-earth, simplicity itself, in which Patanjali demonstrates further, he is still into this, 
that there must be a transcendent spirit, something which is beyond the mind, a supramental nature, because the mind is not enough to explain the nature of reality. The universe, the object, this universe, seen and unseen objects, of course, and the mind which governs upon the universe are not enough to explain the whole mystery of creation, and that is why he comes with the discovery of yogis, of course, of the supramental reality of Atman, the spirit, the supreme self. And he says, according to himself, this is a sufficient demonstration, and he says, if oh, I'm reading now the Sutra 21, or at least a possible translation of it, if cognition by one mind of the other be accepted, then there would be cognition of cognitions, till the infinite, leading to absurdity and confusion of memory. It's a very profound uh, sutra and it's worth meditating upon it because it is one of the meditations, it is one of the intellectual meditations which can make you discover spirit. Normally, mind cannot discover something which is beyond mind. But by pushing the mind into a loop, into one of these paradoxes, you can get the mind to kind of freeze, to kind of freeze and admit its incapacity to go beyond. And therefore here Patanjali tries the impossible. He tries to demonstrate with mental arguments the existence of something which is beyond the mind. And he says, if cognition by one mind of the other of the other mind, that one mind knows the other mind, be accepted, then there would be cognition of cognitions till the infinite, leading to absurdity and confusion of memory. If I would say, huh, look at my mind, I can now study my mind, look, my mind is very agitated, or this, and if I'm saying, oh, it's another part of the mind which looks at this part of the mind, Okay, so a part of the mind or another mind knows another mind. I have split the mind already. The question is, who knows the second mind? Who guards the guardian, you know? If this one observes the mind, then who observes this one? Then there must be a part of the mind to observe this one. And like this, he says, you can push it to the infinite. It's like a multiple reflection in a mirror. It, it goes to the infinite. And he says, you cannot have a mind knowing another mind knowing another mind knowing another mind, because there is no limit. You don't find any limit. And then he says, this will lead both to absurdity, like there would be an infinite part of the mind, and that is not possible simply in a manifested reality, in a limited universe. And on the other hand, he says, it would bring confusion of memory. If this mind knows this mind and has the memory of this knowledge, then how does that memory go to the next one and to the next one and to the next one? It is very, very, very interesting that Patanjali here turns the sentence not many people commenting, not many philosophers or psychologists thinking about such a level of existence would have brought up this last twist of, of phrase. He says there, there will be cognition of cognition still the infinite leading to absurdity and he adds this mysterious end of sentence and confusion of memory. Why is this relevant? Why is the memory relevant? Why bring up the memory at all? Because there would be many other collateral fallout from such a pernicious model that the mind observes the mind. And therefore, why mention the memory? Mentioning the memory because the memory is ultimately the cement which connects the moments with each other. Remember that Patanjali several times has mentioned that the reality is made of static moments, of the power of now, of static slides of spirit, which are glued to each other, like in a cinematographic film. There are slides, 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 and there is a relationship between those slides to generate the impression of this moving world, and not some cacophony, not something completely illogical and discordant. And this glue, which is the law of cause and effect, of course, in a way, 
uh, it is after all memory when the universe blinks flashes forward plop this is one slide and then the universe switches off and flashes forward again with the next slide and that is of course in infinitesimal time when the universe flashes forward it needs to have a memory somewhere to remember what was in this slide and what comes in the next slide therefore there exists a memory of the divine consciousness which is beyond the slide which is like a glue which is what makes the universe remember where it remained so that there should not appear discontinuity in the movement uh, glitches in this uh, existence and therefore memory is the divine function memory ultimately belongs to Sahasrara Abhinava Gupta the greatest Kashmirian tantric master said it is only about the supreme lord God he means the supreme consciousness it is only about the supreme lord that we can say he remembers only God truly remembers all other forms of memory are derivate forms of memory the ultimate power of the mind is in Ajna Chakra but we have intelligence on Manipura technical engineering intelligence is on Manipura we have some forms of intelligence associated to Svadhisthana emotional intelligence is called by the psychologists uh, streetwise James Bond type of smartness is on Svadhisthana so intelligence is not only in Ajna Chakra there exists a form of mind which is specific to each chakra a mentality of each chakra and exactly as mind exists at each chakra memory can exist at the level of each chakra on Svadhisthana chakra we have the memory uh, sometimes the crazy memory of insignificant little details on Muladhara chakra we can have melancholic memory the memory of the elephant elephants never forget at the level of Vishuddha chakra we have a much more refined memory the memory of the universe Akasha the universal recordings and at the level of Sahasrara we have the personal archive of God we simply have the memory of the cosmic consciousness which of course never can forget anything because it is everything and it cannot forget itself and that is why memory is much more significant than other things so he mentions it would be absurd intellectually and on top of everything for those who can understand it would bring about confusion of memory the universe would be a chaos then we wouldn't have the possibility of this glue that connects one moment to the next and being confusion of memory would turn from an orderly cosmos to a chaos to a universe which is pure chaos and which makes no sense there would be no laws of the universe even a simple law like the law of gravitation or the laws that we know about electricity or any coherent law in this universe which scientists study and try to understand and piece together would not exist everything would be chaos there would be no re repeatability there would be no order in the universe and that is the divine function only the divine makes order out of chaos so Patanjali in a very beautiful way he inserts this thing there would be logical absurdity and for those who understand confusion of memory memory is the foundation of the universe the divine remembers try to realize you remember who you are every atom in your body changes every 12 years even your bones won't have a single atom common with today in 12 years from now and although you change your atoms several times over some of them many times over some of them in 12 years and in 12 years from now you'll be a completely new person from the level of every single atom nevertheless you will have the feeling that you are the same so the wave the resultant of this body and its energies will always remain the same the self does not change that's why the divine consciousness is the guarantor it is the steward of this constance of spirit the spirit cannot change 
and the universe is relying on memory. If there would not exist the divine memory, you wouldn't preserve your genetical form. You would change. Everything in this universe would be a chaos. The fact that things seem to run orderly somewhere, it's because of the order in Sahasrara, because of the memory. And this is a beautiful meditation. When you'll have the opportunity, write it down and try to meditate and to see, can the mind know the mind? Patanjali says it's completely absurd and it to transform everything into a metaphysical nightmare, into a chaos. And he continues then by trying to explain how the mind relates to the spirit. Now he has got two things. He has the mind and he demonstrated there is something above the mind which is immutable beyond time and space, absolute in nature, which is pure spirit, Purusha, and that something is what rounds up the image. And now he tries to show how the mind connects to that reality. And he actually comes to some very, very beautiful demonstrations and statements which you are going to see in this discourse. He says in the Sutra number 22, continuing, Knowledge of its own nature through self-cognition is accomplished when consciousness assumes that form in which it does not pass from one stage to another. Therefore, here it basically says, the mind has knowledge. The nature of mind is knowledge. This is what the, fun the main function of the mind is. And he says, knowledge of its own nature through self-cognition is accomplished when consciousness assumes that form in which it does not pass from one stage to another. Remember, he spoke before about making Samyama on the moment, that you stop on the moment and not passing from one stage to another, focusing on the moment. And therefore, he says, if the mind, that simply produces knowledge, if the mind focuses on this immutable reality, then automatically you have knowledge of its own nature. So, mind becomes consciousness by focusing exactly on the nature of consciousness. Remember that from the very beginning, in the chapter number one, as well as in the chapter number three, Patanjali has warned us twice that the mind assumes the form of that upon which it focuses. And those of you who remember, there was a beautiful comparison with a crystal, with a translucent crystal, which can be put on a piece of paper that is pink or green or something, and the whole crystal seems to become pink, because it's put on a piece of paper which is pink. Therefore, the mind focuses on an elephant and becomes the elephant. That's called Samyama, right? Identification, that the mind becomes that, when the concentration is divine, when the concentration is really perfect. The mind focuses on the pole star and it becomes the pole star. It identifies with the pole star and with the rotational relative movement of the universe as, as we see it from Earth. Whatever the mind focuses upon, it becomes that thing. And of course, if the mind is focusing on Purusha, then it becomes Purusha. If the mind focuses on pink, the crystal becomes pink. But if the mind focuses on the void, then the mind becomes void. The mind can focus on 99.99% of all sorts of things of the manifestation, but it can also focus on, it, on the nature of the self. The mind can return towards the supramental, the mind can look back to its source. And therefore, here he explains that the mind connects to the spirit. There is a buffer in which the mind connects to the spirit. We saw that the mind connects to the object, but now we find out that the mind also, when it focuses on this immutable state, then it connects, it loses, uh, its modifications and it acquires this knowledge of its own nature. Therefore, if there would be no spirit, 
the mind would have nothing to identify with. If there would exist no void, the mind would not have the possibility to focus on the void and to become the void. Therefore, the mind alone still couldn't do it. But because the mind is like in a sandwich between the void and the manifestation, then the mind can go towards manifestation or towards non-manifestation, which gives to the mind a very special status, as we are going to see. And therefore, in the Sutra number 23, he continues this statement, and here he says it brilliantly, and this will bring us to a very beautiful understanding. He says, he demonstrated that the mind can look into self-realization, and then in the Sutra number 23, which is shorter, he says, the mind being colored thus by the seer and the seen is all apprehending, is omniscient. Patanjali says it is the cosmic mind which is omniscient because, he says, it is colored like a crystal. Thus, by the seer, which is the spirit, the subject, Purusha, and by the scene. Therefore, it's like a buffer. Without Purusha, the mind cannot perceive. So, here he says, the mind is basically placed like a sandwich. It's sandwiched between Purusha and the world. That's why in reality, in the description of reality, Patanjali would describe the world as the manifestation, the world of objects, Purusha as the void, the pure spirit, the Shiva nature, and the mind, which is a twilight zone, a buffer zone, Ajna chakra placed between Sahasrara and the other five elements that conceive, that constitute the universe. This is the correct understanding, and this gives to the mind a very special status, Try to think which are the characteristics when you read and you are going to see Patanjali comes brilliantly to this at some point later. When we, he here he says, the mind being colored thus by the seer and the seen. The two extremes, the seer, the subject and the seen, the object. And the mind caught between the hammer and the anvil, caught between those two. The mind is therefore omniscient. It can know the subject. For an enlightened being, an enlightened being says, you know, Vivekananda talks to Ramakrishna, Indian Vivekananda talks to his guru Paramhamsa Ramakrishna and says, can you see this God that you keep babbling about? And Ramakrishna says, I can see God as clearly as I can see you now. Which simply says, his mind knows. It's not only a, a perception in which he is in the void and his breath has stopped and he is frozen in awe in a state of rapture, a mystical rapture. He is actually able in his mind to say, I know God, I know the self, I know the supramental. So his mind can lift its eyes and see the spirit and can look at the universe and says, I can see that as well I can see you. You are part of the universe, you are seen, and I can see the seer as well. Therefore the mind is omniscient, because the mind being between those actually has access to both of them. That is why Patanjali likes so much this level of the mind. And that's why in Indian and Tibetan yoga, you find so much emphasis on the use of Ajna Chakra, on working on the third eye, on working on the mind, because the mind is sufficient for controlling the universe, and the mind is sufficient for understanding the higher reality. And uh, therefore, the mind, as I said, has this function as a buffer. But remember, that in this buffer we have three levels, the universe, the scene, and this one has no light in it. It's not a self-effulgent reality. The mind is also not self-effulgent. So the only source of light is the spirit, Purusha, 
Purusha is self-luminous, is self-enlightened, is life itself, I'm sorry, it's light itself. It's Prakasha, as called in the Tantric tradition, the light of the consciousness. And therefore, neither the mind nor the universe would not perceive anything were there not for this bulb above them too, over this spotlight from Sahasrara, from the crown chakra, which illumines the rest. So, therefore, there is a necessity for all these levels. There is a logical necessity. Remember that in classical yoga, and this is used so much in Hinduism, there is almost no text where you will not find this syntax in Indian mystical philosophy. The reality is divided in knower, knowledge, and known. Now, if we analyze them in this way, try to realize when Patanjali speaks about seer and seen, the seer is the knower. So let's, the spirit is the knower, the one that knows. The known is the universe, the universe made of the five elements. So the manifested universe. And in between them, there is the knowledge at the level of Ajna Chakra. Knower, knowledge and known. So, but many texts say, when you do this meditation, knowledge, knower and known become one. And this is a definition of an ultimate state or of the state of Samadhi. And therefore, here, actually Patanjali is touching dangerously again for him the tantric tradition. Because the mind then is the meeting point of Shiva and Shakti. The mind, technically speaking, is a Shakti herself because the mind represents an energy. And this shows that we are having several levels of transition in the universe and this takes us to the continuity of reality and consciousness, which is the syntax, which is the keynote of the tantric tradition. So in the moment when Patanjali says, the mind being colored by the seer and the seen is all apprehending or all knowledgeable, omniscient, that is the technical word for it, all knowledgeable, omniscient, then automatically Patanjali says, omniscience, is obtained at the level of Ajna Chakra. Actually, this is one of the great Mahasiddhis. In yoga there exists the so-called eight Mahasiddhis, and one of them is defined as omniscience, the divine quality of omniscience. And Patanjali says it is the mind which is omniscient, paradoxically, because the void is the subject. The void doesn't know quantitatively. Purusha, Atman, the Buddha nature, the Supreme Self, does not know the way the mind knows. It is a witness. And this is a bit difficult to understand, but you are going to see that Patanjali continues with these divisions and distinctions to make us understand truly what he wants to say. And therefore, here Patanjali defines, and he says in the moment when we have this mixture and this meeting, between non-manifestation and manifestation, the mind is the bridge between them. It is all in the mind. The mind observes the object, the mind observes the subject inward, and thus the mind is the bridge between those, which therefore means that the mind is the substratum of reality in this way, and it is the substratum of existence of the Bhava Samadhi or the Samadhi with the eyes open. The spirit unites with the matter and the matter unites with the spirit in Western philosophical concepts, to put it, via the mind, via the cosmic mind. This is really, really an important concept because it makes you understand why the mind has the valences which it has. For example, Pata I'm sorry, not Patanjali, but Ramakrishna, claims very clearly that in the moment when one enters fully in Ajna Chakra, at the highest level of Ajna Chakra, you already reach Nirvikalpa Samadhi and the higher levels of Samadhi. 
And also, Krishna in Bhagavad Gita says if the yogi in the moment of death sits cross-legged and focuses all his vital breath and energy and attention and exits his soul through the third eye, he doesn't mention Brahmarandra as is the case in most Indian and Tibetan yoga and in the art of dying. And he says even with Ajna Chakra and he says that yogi shall never be reborn in this world again which means that yogi has reached liberation, that yogi has reached moksha or mukti. And therefore this is Ajna Chakra. Wait a second, I thought that it needed Sahasrara. Yes and no, which means on one hand we cannot deny Sahasrara, because if we deny Sahasrara we are falling into the error of materialism. These are the two errors. Some people take only two slides of the sandwich. Materialists take only the matter and the mind. Materialists are ready to make this concession that, okay, there is not only uh, matter, there is also mind. Uh, we are talking about matter, energy, these are the various five levels, and then on top of it there is what modern philosophers would call information. Information is a sort of superstructure, of suprastructure, which governs matter and energy and organizes it. Materialists think that all you need to conceive of the universe is matter, energy included, because energy is a form of matter, matter and energy if you prefer, and on top of them, information. But there is no spirit. The spirit is more than information. The information is the mind. This, therefore, is the concept of the universe which stops at the level of Ajna Chakra. The highest thing is Ajna Chakra. Even the devil in the Bible, Lucifer is a fallen angel that once upon a time was beautiful and had a star on its forehead. Mystical way of saying that the, what is called the devil, the fallen entity that is called the devil, actually had reached at the level of Ajna Chakra with some of its stuff, but not Sahasrara. Suddenly the spirit is not there. And Judas, he asks Jesus, he says, I don't understand you. Because this cannot be understood. This has to be transcended. And Jesus tells him, don't try to understand me with the mind. If you stop at the level of the mind, you are Luciferic. This is Lucifer. This is the level of the devil. The devil tried to understand and said, I am the ultimate power in this universe. I am God myself. Who is like me? I have Ajna Chakra. I can move the universe on my little finger. So what is there left? There is something left, but that something is transcendent, imperceivable, immutable, not of this world. And that is precisely the light of the consciousness, which discreetly and modestly makes possible this universe. It's so much of a background reality that we live in it and we exist and we can speak today and you can perceive me and understand me and everything because we are bathed in this light of consciousness and if this light of consciousness would switch off there would be no understanding, there would be no perception, there would be just a complete indistinct undifferentiation right now and we, we, we are bathed in it, but we don't perceive it. We are so much bathed in it that we take it for granted. And that is why it's impossible to observe it. It's exactly like we don't feel the pressure of the air, although physics tells us that the atmospheric pressure is no less than one kilo per each square centimeter of our skin. So actually the atmosphere of the planet Earth is pressing on us with tons and tons on each and every one of you. I mean, we don't feel it. We are used with it. We are grown in this pond. We are raised in this aquarium. And if we're like fish in the water, we are used with the pressure of this atmosphere and we think it's natural. We are adapted to it. In the same way, we are adapted to cosmic consciousness. We are part of it so much that it's right under our noses. We see it right now. It's as Rumi said, there is no need to suffer. God is here. It's here and now, after all. But although you are being told a thousand times, it's impossible to see it because we take it for granted. 
We take for granted the miracle that we can perceive that we have consciousness. And therefore, if you look at the universe from down, upward, you see the five elements, the object, and then the mind. And if you stop at the level of the mind, that is the Luciferic error. That is ultimately, metaphysically, materialism. That I don't understand and seem to need that spotlight on top of everything because I don't even know that there is a spotlight because I take it for granted. I'm so used to it that I can't even realize that it's there like I'm used to a background sound or to the pressure of the air. The other error is the error of the idealistic spiritualist who look from the level of pure consciousness down to the world and they say, why should you bother with the object? All there is is pure spirit, the Buddha nature, the great void, and then the mind. And thus you have Tibetan yogis who say the whole universe is mind. The whole, the whole thing is made of mind. It's actually not really made of mind because you deny the very existence of Shakti unfolded. This is limiting Shakti to just a seed aspect in the mind. It's the spirit and the mind. Wait a second. The mind and then the world of the objects, the five tattvas, the five elements, the five chakras, which correspond to the building of the manifestation. Both of them are incomplete errors. To look from above and to say, oh, the whole thing is there for just mind, it is reflected through the mind, it is controlled through the mind, but it doesn't mean that the universe does not exist. Some Tibetan yogis freaked out for years and years and years in a cave in meditation, and they got to the point where they are so much in states of void and pure consciousness, that they simply said, I saw the mind as an ocean that was bathing everything, and everything, houses, tree, people, were like ripples on the surface of this ocean of mind, and then I suddenly understood that the whole thing was made of mind. Right, somebody should take a hammer and blow you over the finger really hard to demonstrate that you are in a special state of consciousness where you try to omit, you do not see the whole spectrum. The whole spectrum is knower, knowledge and known. This is the complete understanding of the universal reality. Therefore, this is a very, very beautiful sutra which opens the door to many tantric understandings because here Patanjali has found a bridge, a midpoint between the world of objects and the transcendent reality. And he continues by saying, in the sutra number 24, Though variegated by innumerable vasanas, it acts for Purusha because it works in association with it. Who it? Well, the mind. He was talking about the mind all the time, wasn't he? And he just said the mind is surpassed by Purusha, but the mind is omniscient. That was the last statement. So he said this mind, because it's a little bit of Purusha and a little bit of Prakriti, is omniscient. Okay. And now in the Sutra number 24 he says, Though variegated by innumerable vasanas, subconscious tendencies, roots, vritis, whatever you want to call them, uh, vikalpas, concepts, it, the mind, this mind, which is between the two, it acts for the Purusha, because it works in association with it. When the mind sits on a pink piece of, when a crystal sits on a pink piece of paper, it becomes pinkish. In the same way, the mind at the highest level, working for the cosmic consciousness, because the cosmic consciousness is the spotlight, this ultimate consciousness is the spotlight, and therefore, the mind works willy-nilly in association with the pure consciousness. And that is why the mind, he says, although variegated by innumerable vasanas, at the lower level, the lower end of the spectrum, the mind is in conversation with the universe, and therefore it is tainted by the universe with various vasanas, 
I told you, you think about one thing, you see one thing, you experience one emotion, you do something, and this stays in your subconscious mind. You have already impurified your subconscious mind. It's not clear as an ocean without waves. It is already variegated with vasanas, samskaras, kleshas, whatever you want to call these, vikalpas, concept. All these can be related. All these are equivalent words. Don't get uh, uh, confused by them. They don't mean exactly, exactly the same, but they are all in the same family. And for the purpose of this sutra, we can simply put them all together. So though variegated by vasanas, samskaras, kleshas, vikalpas, vritis, whatever you want to see that there is a differentiated aspect in the mind, though variegated by that, the mind nevertheless acts for Purusha, the one, the supramental, because it is connected to this spotlight. It is through this opening that the light is pouring in the universe, that the light is making the universe possible. And therefore, if there would be, this would be taken away, the whole thing would disappear. And therefore, the mind must work in association with uh, Purusha. And therefore, Patanjali says, do not separate them. The mind is a separate thing from Purusha, and it is variegated with lots of impurities sometimes, and still it works in association with Purusha. You cannot separate the mind from Purusha, although they are different. Knower, knowledge and known are one at an ultimate analysis. You cannot separate the knower from the knowledge. And that is why Patanjali basically here denies his own Vedantic classical yoga separating opinions because Patanjali ultimately says actually the mind and the spirit have a continuity. The mind works for the spirit and therefore the mind does what the spirit wills it to do and therefore there is a continuity. But this continuity means that Purusha is Prakriti and Prakriti is Purusha. This continuity means that Shiva is Shakti and Shakti is Shiva and therefore here Patanjali discreetly, either he wishes it or not, he contradicts himself again. At some point he is purely separate, puritanic, isolationist, and on the other hand, then he comes and says, well, actually, do not fret, because the mind and the spirit are actually working in tandem. There, there is not just like a slicing, which simply says spirit is separate, and the mind and the universe are completely cut off from that universal spirit. It's not possible. And with this, Patanjali again gives an opinion which is rather tantric at a deep metaphysical level. <coughs> and Patanjali continues. He still wants to demonstrate a little bit the relationship between mind and spirit so we understand clearly how this triad works. So in the Sutra number 25, Patanjali says, the awareness of self-consciousness, which is a pretty bad translation. Actually, he means the sense of ego. He means ahamkara in terms of classical yoga. Those of you who are conversant or easy with the Sanskrit words, you remember that ahamkara is a function of the mind, which basically says, I am a limited entity. is a sort of very refined ego. It is the ego at the level of the root. It is the root ego at the level of the mind. It's not egoism in the meaning of an emotional, psychological, gross, cross, disturbing, pathetic egoism. It's an ego more like a higher concept. And Patanjali says, the awareness of this sense of ego ceases completely for the one who sees the distinction. Therefore, in the moment when this distinction is seen, that's why he keeps on telling to us about the distinction. Understand the mind as the mind, understand the self, the supreme self, the Atman as the Atman. Therefore, then 
one does not identify anymore with ahamkara, with his mental ego. One starts identifying with the self, with the divine self. And for we can say that for him, this distinction between atma, chitta, and the object disappears. It's not that one separates. Again, Patanjali here self-sabotages his classic philosophy because basically he says for him this distinction the, the distinction disappears in the moment when you reach this level of consciousness and the distinction is Atma, the seer the, the knowledge itself the Chitta, the mind and finally the object, the universe, the known and therefore this uh, sutra is very slippery some yogic commentators prefer to translate it like well the awareness of the ego ceases completely for one who sees the distinction and they leave it to that, they don't push here because if they push they are going to unearth some very non-classical philosophy some very tantric philosophy, and they simply leave it at face value. And okay, Patanjali says that when you see the distinction, then there, there is no more mental ego, when you have understood where the mental ego came from. But also, because Patanjali kept talking and saying, actually we are having knower, knowledge, and known, and actually the mind works in association with Purusha, they are not separate, and therefore he says, for him, for such a person, then the distinction between knower, knowledge, and known, between Atma, mind, and the universe, disappears. And this is again a tantric thing, because it means the universe is the self. The self is the universe. And this is automatically a tantric realization. And that is, that's what makes this sutra difficult and slippery. You will find, if you, when you bother to look after it, you will find various translations for this sutra because of its difficulty. It was the sutra number 25. And... He then continues. Then, verily, the mind is inclined towards discrimination and heads on towards Kaivalya. So he says, if the distinction has disappeared completely, this distinction, then, verily, the mind is inclined towards discrimination and heads towards Kaivalya. Basically, here he pre prepares the final onslaught, the final statement which is going, which are going to start uh, in the next sutra. So in the sutra number 26, basically he presented, he concludes this presentation of the spirit, mind, universe, triad, and he says when you have understood this, the mind is inclined towards discrimination, so the mind looks upwards, goes at its upper and, and at the same time is united with reality and heads on towards Kaivalya. I am reminding that for Patanjali, the Sanskrit word Kaivalya is equivalent with Samadhi, the void, or Nirvikalpa Samadhi, more technically, and uh, therefore he prepares his final statement to conclude this wonderful chapter about the mind and the union between the mind and the spirit. Here Patanjali is ultimately making the theory uh, of the supramental. The great 20th century yogi Sri Aurobindo dwelled deeply, deeply into these aspects by creating the term which is not existing in most dictionaries of English language. It's not accepted even by computer word processing corrections and does not exist in Webster or other uh, known dictionaries because it's a term coined by Sri Aurobindo and it is known only to people who read Aurobindo and who are in Indian spirituality, in, in, into Indian modern spirituality. It is called the supramental, the thing which is above the mind. And this supramental is nothing else but Atman. But it is interesting that Aurobindo 
presents it as a sort of related to the mind. He doesn't call it mind and void, mind and atman. He calls it mental and supramental. Like there is a continuity. That's exactly what Patanjali says. He says, don't worry, because this mind, although variegated by vasanas, it works together with purusha. So the mind and the supramental are not completely separate from each other. One has to uh, take this into account because this shows us that there is no split between the creative consciousness and the universe. There is a continuity and this continuity is very, very difficult to understand. And therefore he says, then verily the mind is inclined towards discrimination and heads on towards Kaivalya. The mind, when is made aware of this, hey, the mind is not the last level. There is something above the mind. The mind, we don't stop at Ajna. We don't stop at six. There is the penthouse at the level of the seventh floor as well. We have to go all the way up to the seventh level, and only then we can get the complete understanding because of the supramental and the rest. And therefore, he says, when the mind notices these things, then the mind automatically is inclined towards liberation. You are getting what the Buddhists call bodhicitta, the mind towards enlightenment, the aspiration towards enlightenment. Your mind thinks of liberation, of transcending. So he says, verily then, when you reach this, the mind is inclined towards discrimination and heads on towards Kaivalya. And with this, we have concluded this uh, sutra which concludes the statement and in our next presentation in our next discourse we are going to look into the final statements of Patanjali to illustrate the state of spiritual realization <laughs>